Well, good morning, everyone. I hope your summer is going well. And I hope you know that it's okay not to be okay. I hope you understand that it's okay not to be okay here at Wheaton Bible Church. We're a hospital, not a country club. And all of us have issues, bear burdens, family finances, uh, work, relationships, health. All of us struggle with the downward pull of sin in our hearts, not to mention in the world around us. It's ironic, but according to the Bible, if you think you're okay, you're not okay. But if you know you're not okay, and you're seeking and finding the great physician who alone makes us okay, then you're going to be fine. So this morning, as we continue our series on the life of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, one of the key figures in the Old Testament, not to mention uh, the Bible, we come to Genesis chapter 16. The story of Abraham starts in chapter 12. Today we're in chapter 16. And here we discover exactly what I've been talking about. Because Abraham, this giant of a man, his wife Sarah, Sarah's servant Hagar, who is now bearing Abraham's first son. All of them aren't okay. As a matter of fact, we could title chapter 16, it's okay not to be okay because God is a God of infinite grace. Now would you stand with me and we're going to read together Genesis chapter 16 or I will read and we stand out of reverence for God's word in Genesis chapter 16 verse 1 I'm going to read the entire chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed with what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Cana 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarai, her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows that she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so Hagar fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. Hagar is heading back to her home country of Egypt. And the angel said, Hagar, son of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. 
Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Sounds like a pleasant guy, right? She gave him, she gave this name rather to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Lahai Roy, and it is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born, and Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. That's God's word. You may be seated. Now, I'm going to walk through this chapter. It's so fascinating. It's so interesting. And I'm going to add to what our English translations have for us here. I'm reading from the NIV because the Hebrew is a lot stronger in many instances in chapter 16 than some of our English translations. And I'm going to refer to Abram as Abraham and Sarai as Sarah because in the next chapter, chapter 17, they are given these two new names. And I will do that lest I get horribly confused and go back and forth between Sarai and Sarah, uh, for example. So let's go back to the beginning. In the very first verse, we are told that Sarai is childless. There I did it. That Sarah is childless. And this is the key circumstance that drives everything that takes place in this chapter. Everything flows from the fact that Sarah is childless. And the problem is compounded because by the time we come to chapter, or verse 3 rather, we are told it's been 10 years since God first appeared uh, to Abraham, announcing that Abraham, and by definition Sarah, who was his wife, would have a child. Ten years have gone by. And by the time we get to the last verse, verse 16 in chapter 16, we discover that Abraham is now a cool six, 86 years old. Sarah, 10 years younger, is 76. And Sarah, in her heart, knows it's crazy to think that she can get pregnant. Sarah is not okay. She is in enormous pain. Because in her ancient Near Eastern world, there was nothing more important for a woman than to have children. Children were a mother's assets, if you will. Her significance. And to be infertile like Sarah is, is 
devastating, was devastating psychologically and, and socially. But for Sarah, I believe it was also devastating spiritually because she knew the promises. She knew what God had announced. God had promised a son and a nation as a result of the son and ultimately one day the Messiah that would come from the nation who would save the world. But that was 10 years ago. And so I wonder if Sarah not only felt like she was letting down Abraham, but letting down God. I wonder if Sarah not only experienced deep grief, but deep guilt. It's my fault. Uh, 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 God, uh, I can't do this. And I feel worthless. So in the very next verse, verse 2, Sarah offers a solution, a proposal. She says to Abraham, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now this sounds so very strange to us, but actually in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was a common practice. It was common for the matriarch of the clan to go to the patriarch and say, here, take my servant girl. I offer to her to you as a second-tier wife. In verse 3, Sarah is called Abraham's wife. Sleep with her, and through her we can have a child. Now all of that is in a culture where the matriarch owns the servant girl. Hagar is Sarah's property, which means that when Hagar bears a son, Sarah would own that son. She would raise that son. She would control uh, that son. So plan A, God's plan to give birth to a son through Sarah was displaced by Sarah for plan B, a human plan. And by the way, before I go on, let me just say something about polygamy. Nowhere in the Bible is polygamy condoned. We see it practiced in the Bible as we do here, but it's never condoned. Well, how do we know it's not condoned? Because over and over when polygamy is practiced in the Bible, the results are always disastrous. The results here in chapter 16 are disastrous. I mean, think about the conflicts. This conflict between Sarah and Hagar, it wasn't just bad words between them. It was much more. So we read this. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar. Now this is a word that is used in the next chapter or the next book of the Bible, early in the book of Exodus, to describe how the Egyptian masters treated the Jews while the Jews were in bondage in Egypt and they couldn't make bricks fast enough. And we are told the Egyptians beat the Jews. So this English word mistreats softens the Hebrew concept. Sarah beat Hagar. 
And that's why she fled. Why she was leaving the land of promise and heading back to Egypt. The conflict between Sarah and Hagar couldn't have been greater. Then there was the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac, who will be born when Sarah is 90. And Isaac is the son of promise. And Ishmael finds himself in a very difficult situation. And as a result, there is conflict generation after generation between the Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael, and the Israelites, the descendants of Isaac. So look at verse 12 again. This is describing Ishmael, and we have this word hostility. Man, you would be hostile too if you grew up in a home where you were told you were always second. That your younger brother was first. That he was better, if you will, because he was the child of the promise. That Isaac was upheld, that Isaac was loved, that Isaac was esteemed. And you, Ishmael, were tolerated. And that favoritism on the part of Abraham and Sarah was like a slow drip poison in Ishmael's heart. And it made him angry. It made him bitter. It made him hostile. Favoritism kills kids. And that's what's going on here. Now I say that to say that Ishmael will grow up and he will not be okay because Sarah was not okay because all of this was her idea. Now let me go on. What I want you to see is that Abraham also uh, wasn't okay. So let's look at the last sentence here in verse 2. We read this and we really miss what's uh, going on because of the English translation, Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Now, the word agreed is the Hebrew word listen. And the writer is suggesting that at this point, Abraham has stopped listening to God and in this moment is listening to his wife. This word agreed, translated listening, is also used in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, interestingly enough, to describe Adam listening to Eve about eating the fruit and disobeying God. Now, my point isn't that Adam and Abraham listened to their wives. We as husbands should. My point is that Abraham and Adam knew the commands of God, they knew the promises of God, and they chose to ignore them. I say this because this verse illustrates that in Genesis 6.16, Abraham is weak, he is passive, he's disobedient, and he's unbelieving. And we see this a little later in verse 6 again. When Abraham says to Sarah, your sl the slave is in your hands, uh, don't bother me, you go do with her what you want. Now I submit to you, this is an incredible illustration of marriage indifference. 
of cold-heartedness, if you will. I mean, Abraham knew how furious Sarah, his wife, was. He knew that her emotions were raging, that she was out of control. And instead of saying, hey, Sarah, we need to talk this through. I need to help you build some fences around your heart. Abraham just blows Sarah off. But it's worse. He knew that Hagar was in danger because of Sarah's fury. And he took no steps to protect Hagar at all. So we see a man who's completely indifferent, just says to his wife, hey, don't bother me. You go fix this thing as you see fit. What the writer is telling us about Abraham in chapter 16 is that this hero of the faith at this point in time has no spiritual spinal column. Uh, that he's ignoring the promises of God because he wants to keep peace as he thinks of peace. So like Sarah, Abraham is not okay. Now the point in Genesis 16 isn't that it's okay to sin. What Genesis 16 is doing instead is being very realistic about the fact that all of us are mixed bags, a mixture of good and evil, even the so-called heroes of the faith. They are no different than you and I in their struggles, in their failures. Now I want to go on and I want to make three observations before we look at Hagar and the angel. And here's the first. One of the takeaways for me as I've studied this passage is that unbelief is fueled by impatience. I mean, it is with me. I, I don't know about you, but it is with me. All it takes is a long train or a long line, and I have become functionally an atheist. And it may not be a train for you, uh, but there's other ways you become impatient. Waiting is always a test, especially waiting upon God. So the question in our passage is, will Abraham and Sarah wait on God even after 10 years have gone by for God to intervene and provide a son or will they intervene themselves and grab control of this situation? But the temptation for these two was too great. They grew impatient and they crossed the line and grabbed control. And they make a horrible mistake that lasts for centuries. Now, I want to take the subject of impatience a little further. I want to go a little deeper. And I want to fast forward to a time when Israel is in the wilderness. They have fled Egypt. They're not yet in the promised land. And they're experiencing good days and really bad days. Paul tells us in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, that the wilderness experience of Israel is a picture of the spiritual life for the believer. Good days, bad days, good times, 
uh, lots of days where we're really struggling. So look at these two verses out of Numbers. The Israelites traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. Now, I believe there's a lot of insight to impatience here. Because what we learn is when we grow impatient, we think, we speak, and we act against God. Why? Because we doubt God's timing. We question, where in the world are you, God? And we get way ahead of ourselves. God, why am I in this? God, this isn't the way it should be. And we don't necessarily think that, but boy, do we react. This is why, by the way, some of us stop praying. This is why some of us stop reading the Bible. Why some of us stop uh, coming to church. I'm not getting anything out of it. It's impatience. It's why men do porn. It's why we drink too much. Why we do drugs. Why we get sideways with the people we love. We want to feel better now, and if we don't feel better now, just like Abraham and Sarah, we take shortcuts. And the shortcuts always make things worse, and just like Sarah, we become ugly. In Genesis chapter 16, Sarah is out of patience. And so she says, in effect, in effect, if I have to choose between God and a baby, I'm choosing the baby. It's been 10 years. And I wonder this morning, what's your baby? What is the one thing you think you must have right now in order to be happy, in order to be significant? Others have pointed out, I love this insight, that Hagar isn't the only slave in this chapter. Sarah is a slave inwardly. So is your baby a, a new, a, a different job? Does it have something to do with marriage? with um, a resolution of a conflict in the marketplace or in, in, in your family with one of your children? Is it a money thing, a, a health thing? My point in going to Numbers chapter 21 is that it illustrates the impatience of Sarah in Genesis chapter 16 and what God is teaching us is do not fight God's timing, embrace it. Even if everything around you speaks against it. As a matter of fact, the moment you are faced with a trial, you will be way ahead of the game if you tell yourself, I am exactly where God wants me to be right now. And you trust, you rest in God's timing. In God's sovereign plan for your life. Let me go on to the second observation. 
Impatience is fueled by deception. I want to suggest that Abraham and Sarah at this point are both deceived. Temptation begins in the mind. As a believer in Jesus Christ, God has given you a new mind, a new heart, your new creatures in Christ. He has given you a new mind so you can discern, you can sift between evil and good. And God holds you responsible for that. And that's why temptation begins with deception. Because your mind is the surveillance system of your soul. And its cameras are on. And it's watching for evil versus good. But what deception wants to do, what sin wants to do, is shut off those cameras. So you will go dark. So sin and deception can come in and rob you of your righteousness, rob you of your joy, rob you of your wholeness and make you less than God wants you to be. Abraham and Sarah were deceived because they were so caught up in the moment. They thought the moment was way more important than the promises, the power, and, and the presence of God in their lives. And as a result, their minds were neutralized. And just like Adam and Eve, they took and ate the fruit. Because unbelief is fueled by impatience, and impatience is fueled by deception. Let me go on to the third. My third observation is that the antidote to deception is tenacious faith in God's plans, not yours. God's grace, not your works. Now, we got to work at this for a, a, a couple of minutes here. In Genesis 16, there is so much going on that the Apostle Paul, centuries later in the New Testament, pulls out Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah and makes them a centerpiece of his argument in the book of Galatians and tells us that there are only two approaches to God in life. One is living by works, and the other is living by faith. One is the child through, or the child via the Hagar plan, versus the child via the Sarah plan. And in Galatians, Paul tells us these two plans are two different approaches to God. So look at what Paul says in Galatians 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, Hagar, and the other by the free woman, Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, according to works, according to human ingenuity in the denial of God's grace. But his son by the free woman, this would be Isaac, was born as a result of a divine promise. 
Paul is arguing in the book of Galatians using these two as an example that you and I neither come to Christ or grow in Christ by living according to the flesh, by living according to what we need to do, what we need to figure out, but rather we come to Christ and we grow in Christ when we cast ourselves on God's grace and we live daily by faith. And what's going on here in Genesis 16 is so important that the argument is picked up by the Apostle Paul. Sarah represents living by faith, not because she's exercising faith here, but because the only way she could ever conceive, she could ever get pregnant, is by divine, miraculous, gracious intervention. So I wonder this morning, how are you trying to solve your problem? Your stress, your difficulty, do you rest in the power, the presence, the promises of God? Uh, Or do you take control and grab the situation? The one is plan A, the other is plan B. Are are, are you resting in, in God? Or are you trying to merit God's approval, trying to get through life, crawl your way through life by trusting in your own judgment, your own strength, your own fortitude, or or whatever? Well, one of the ways you can tell is by what's going on in your heart. Are you angry like Sarah was angry? Do you blame others like Sarah blamed Abraham? And do you mistreat people? There's two approaches here. One is the approach of the flesh. It's anger. The other is living by faith. And it's joy. Are you trying to save yourself or are you resting in the Savior? All right, that's a lot on Abraham and Sarah. There's so much in this chapter, but now I want to go on quickly to Hagar and the angel. And let's start with Hagar. Let's go back to verse 4. When she, that is Hagar, knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. The word despise is literally the word to look down. So like Sarah, Hagar isn't okay. Where Sarah is jealous and furious, Hagar has become, now that she's pregnant, smug, insubordinate, and arrogant. Now why? Why is the one woman feeling inferior, the other woman feeling superior? Because both are tying their identity to what their culture tells uh, them makes a woman significant, having a baby. Now what I want you to understand is this isn't just a female thing. Every culture tells men and women that you are significant if you do this or you possess that or you succeed in that. And so, for example, in our Western culture today, we are told that we are significant if we perform, if we succeed, if we accumulate wealth, if we look great, if we do great, and on and on. And whatever culture it is, the closer you come to reaching, realizing those cultural goals, 
the more you are tempted to be arrogant and the further you fall from those cultural goals, the more you are tempted to become depressed like Sarah was depressed here. And Paul's point in Galatians chapter 4 is you will never break free of the constraints of culture, conscious and unconscious constraints, unless you understand and apply the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ to your heart daily. Where you live vertically, not horizontally. Where you live in light of who, what Jesus tells you, not what culture tells you. And you understand your forgiveness and your acceptance and your significance and security because Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death in your place. So that the moment you believe, you might find that forgiveness, that safety, that, that acceptance. Because Jesus was raised from the dead after he died in your place. The only way to be free to squash feelings of inferiority and superiority is by clinging to Jesus. The gospel changes the platform of significance because the gospel changes how we access God, how we find forgiveness. You see, it's not what you do it's what Jesus has already done for you. That's Paul's point in Galatians 4, and he argues that's what's going on here in Genesis chapter 16. So let me come to the angel. I want you to understand, we bump into the angel in verse 7, but this is no ordinary angel. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We know this because in verse 13, Hagar says, I have seen God. But we need to back up and ask a more important question, and that, that is the question, why does Jesus Christ appear to this slave woman, this Egyptian, this woman that has just been insubordinate to the mother of Israel? And the answer is found in our text at the end of verse 11, where the angel says, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Jesus doesn't come to Hagar because she's okay, she's not. Jesus comes to Hagar because of his heart, his love, his mercy, his grace. It's okay to not be okay here at Wheaton Bible Church. Because God is a God of infinite, specific, and life-changing grace. And boy, does Jesus love Hagar in this moment. God's greatest desire is that you and I would have fellowship with him. And that's exactly what we see going on. And Hagar's eyes are opened and Hagar converts. Because she is overwhelmed by God's forgiveness, God's acceptance. As somehow God has allowed Hagar to see God in part and still live. So she says in verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. 
and I, I have now seen the one who sees me and I'm still breathing, still living. In other words, Hagar has realized that significant security and joy this side of heaven is found in knowing that you are seen by God. Do you know that? Do you know that the living God sees you? That he never stops seeing you? That he will never forget you? That he will never uh, lose interest in you? If Hagar can say, I have seen the one who sees me, you are in Jesus Christ. Men and women, this is a beautiful chapter because it tells us life isn't about what you do. It's about resting and believing in God's grace. That's where the joy is. So come and cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at what you have done for us in your Son. We thank you for Jesus, for his infinite grace and mercy. And we ask that you would work in our lives, that we might turn to you and uh, continually surrender and live life in your arms, in your love. Would you do this in our lives? Would you change us? Would you bless us? Would you make the grace of God in Jesus Christ real? Amen.